I uh, was in the fifth grade. It's back when cargo pants were cool the first time. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. I had some on. And uh, we had a break between school and basketball practice. So me and some of my buddies were going to go down to the only place to get a candy bar and a something to drink in town was Dockery's One Stop Grocery. They had two gas stations, or two, uh, two uh, opportunities to get gasoline. What do you call them things you get gas with? Pumps. Yeah, I had two pumps. That's all I had. It was a one-horse town with two pumps. And uh, old Dockery's One Stop. So I was on my way with my buddies. We were cutting through from the school to the One Stop. I had my cargo pants on. I had my camouflage wallet. It was really kind of neat. It tri-folded over and then it Velcroed on the top. I had it stuck down the side of my pants. But I didn't, actually, the cargo wasn't snapped very well. So somewhere between the school and the one stop, I parted ways with my wallet. Now, I was not a rich man. Don't claim to be a rich man now. But I had enough money in there to pay for my candy bar and my whatever else I want to drink, soda or whatnot, before basketball practice. By the time I realized I dropped my wallet, I was already indebted to the owner of the shop. You can imagine the lump in my throat, right? I'm a fifth grader. My heart rate sped up. I just want to pause right there and ask you, have you ever had a similar feeling in your life? Heart rate sped up, lump in your throat, because you knew you were in debt to someone. You owed someone something. Perhaps you feel that way today. Perhaps you felt that way recently or at some point in your life. I think it is an emotion we can all identify with. It's a result of owing someone something. The pressure that we feel to pay it back, and the pain that we experience when we're not able to pay it back right away. I was able to pay that back, and the owner of the shop was kind. He was a seasoned gentleman, pillar in the community. It didn't turn out to be as big of a deal as my fifth grade self thought it would be. However, it paints a valuable picture and helps us get into the marrow of our text today. What if I didn't have the means to pay it back at all? What would that mean? I would need some help, wouldn't I? It would be a miserable feeling. I would need some humility and some help. Today I want to talk to you about the concept of reconciliation. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through chapter 6, verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. I want to talk to you about reconciliation, which is us being about the business of persuading others and pursuing Christ with urgency. So I'm going to say that again because that's the, that's the way to follow this sermon, is reconciliation is us about the business of persuading others and pursuing Christ with urgency. That's it. So that's going to be everything I talk about today in a nutshell. So last time, reconciliation is us about the business of persuading others and pursuing Christ with urgency. Preposition on the end, with Urgency, And we're going to see that in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 5 for persuading. We're going to see verse 21 of chapter 5 for pursuing. And then the with urgency comes in the first two verses of chapter 6. Now, before we get into those three points of persuading, pursuing with urgency, and us being about the business of doing that because of reconciliation, I want to simply give a definition of reconciliation because you're going to see it five times in the text that we're about to read. Reconciliation is an English noun with three meanings. An act of reconciling, 
as when former enemies agree to an amicable truce. The state of being reconciled as when someone becomes resigned to something not desired. When you get resigned to a reconciliation term of agreement not desired. Uh, Another definition would be the process of making compatible. The process of making compatible. This is probably the most apt one. To bring into agreement or to bring into harmony. The verbal form to reconcile would be like reconciling differing statements. To reconcile accounts. It would be an accounting term. Or to restore in church in historical church parlance, to restore an excommunicant to communion in the church would be to reconcile that person to church. A simple way to say it is to repair, is to make good again, to renew. This is reconciliation. And this is reconciliation is us about the business of persuading and pursuing with urgency. So let's, let's read the text this morning from God's holy word. It begins with five words. All this is from God. And you'll do well to remember those five words throughout this sermon. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of, you guessed it, reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of Say it with me. Reconciliation. In a word, there's your sermon. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Some of your translations will say it's as though God were making his appeal through us. Basically the same. Next sentence. We implore you. It's the Apostle Paul. So these are the apostles speaking. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Reconcile. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, In a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, some of your translations will say, today is the day of salvation. It says, now, the ESV says, now is the favorable time. Again, alluding to the third section of Isaiah. Now is the favorable time. Behold, a very common word in Old Testament prophetic parlance. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so we see reconciliation connected with the term salvation. Now is the day of of salvation. So first of all, reconciliation is us about the business of persuading others. It says in verses 18 through 19 and 20, again, count the words reconciliation. I think you'll find five usage of the term, five uses of the term reconcile, reconciling, reconciliation. All this is from God who through Christ, number one, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what he did and what he gave us. There's two mentionings of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is in Christ God was, number three, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's my fourth count. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, number five, be reconciled to God. 
We talked last week about the need for us to treat God's redeemed people like they are changing, like they've been changed, believing in the newness, not only of the new covenant corporately, but the newness of the new covenant implications on an individual individually. Believe in newness. Don't utterly count a person's past against them in a way that they're unchangeable in the present and into the future. Our perspective has to change, we talked about last week, because of all this newness in Christ language that we cherish. We have to have a new perspective on a gospelly converted person. All of this is from God. It's not from man. And so we have to believe in the power of the gospel to change an individual. And what I'm not saying is, is that as, as you see people convert to Christ from perhaps mistreatment of the, little, the littlest ones, children, I'm not saying that you then throw caution to the wind and put a person that has a past of mistreating little ones in charge of little ones. You understand what I'm saying? That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying that you don't act wisely for the good of that brother or sister, first of all, that you wouldn't put them in a situation where they have had proclivities to sin in the past, but also for the good of, let, Jesus says, let the little ones come to me, right? There's an example of not, not counting someone's past against them, but taking into account someone's predispositions towards sin and not putting them in a situation where, in fact, yeah, I mean, if someone is convicting of embezzle, convicted of embezzling lots of funds, probably don't need to make them the treasure of the church next year, right? Now, does that mean that person can't be delivered from embezzlement? Absolutely not. Does it mean we don't think that that person is redeemed in Christ? Not at all. Simply knowing a person's predisposition to sin, not putting them in a situation by which they might be tempted. It's brothers and sisters fighting temptation together, like we talked about yesterday at the men's retreat. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being unwise or unshrewd. Here's what I am talking about. A kind of attitude toward those that have professed Christ and have brought credible profession of faith to the body of Christ and have begun to follow Christ, but perhaps been baptized, had, had membership conferred on them into the body of Christ, and then that person, us continuing to be skeptical of that person's development in Christ instead of aiding and abetting that person's development. That's kind of a recap of last week's sermon, but that's what reconciliation is about, is seeing somebody as fundamentally different. The world sees everything through the lens of, of therapy, and of behavior modification. And I, I don't believe for a second that there's a lack of things that we can learn from worldly perspectives on helping people. It's not, not at all what I'm trying to advocate with my comments here. I'm simply saying that analyzing the situation and identifying someone's trauma doesn't go far enough for the gospel. The gospel cuts to the core of a human and cuts to the, the, the core of a person's soul and makes them different, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. We as Christians have to cling to and put into practice actions that, that for, further the belief that God is about the business of changing people. He has deeded us this one sacred aim, the ministry of reconciliation. I got a buddy that uh, talks about, I work for the Ministry of Defense or the Department of Defense or whatnot. Uh, that's kind of how I think of in terms of TV shows and whatnot. The Ministry of Defense, you hear that a lot. Think of this as uh, you're employed in the Ministry of Reconciliation, that this is your job, 
This is how you've been set apart for this job of reconciliation, that you are about the business of persuading others, persuading others with this message of reconciliation, with this gospel. If it sounds official in the way I'm describing it, it's because it is. It is official. You are officially set aside for this when you become a Christian. The Great Commission is for all Christians. That much we can agree with across broad spectrums of evangelical Christianity, that the Great Commission is for all Christians. That's why when we take prospective members through a membership matters course and then have a pre-membership interview with a prospective member, one thing that we have to hear is that that person can articulate the gospel. Now, we don't mean that person has to have a PhD in public communication, that they have to get up in front of the church and give a speech about the gospel. It's not at all what we're saying. We're saying, can that person explain the basics of the gospel? You know, that I'm a sinner, God made me, Jesus died for me, my sins are atoned for because of Jesus' work on the cross, one day he's going to come again, he's going to finalize his kingdom. I don't know, words like that. I mean, we'd give them like paragraphs of stuff to read, they could just pick a couple sentences. It's not like we make it hard, but we have an expectation that from memory they can share the gospel. Now that sounds cruel, doesn't it? I mean, why would you make that a bar of fellowship? Why would you make that some, some kind of a, a strategic litmus test for membership? Because we are so firmly convinced that you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are so firmly convinced that this is not limited to the Apostle Paul, that he is sharing this new covenant ministry with whoever has been reconciled to Christ. We now have this ministry of reconciliation. I wonder, have you taken it seriously lately? I was talking to a brother in this church, a young man who's doing a good deed this week. And he was telling me about the good deed he's about to do to help some people that can't help themselves. And I said, you know, you're going to have a captive audience. Would you be able to share the gospel with them? Details are irrelevant. Well, that's a good idea. We talked about that. I wonder if that might urge some of you. As you're going about your, your patterns this week, would you have a captive audience? Would you have someone you could share the gospel with? Well, Pastor Matt, they just wouldn't be all that interested in that. And, you know, I mean, right, I mean, this is what my father-in-law taught me a long time ago. When people don't do stuff, it's because they don't want to. That's what he taught me a long time ago. He taught me that a long time ago. My father-in-law, he's, a, he's a, just a man of his hands, just worked for a living until he retired. And a lot of times we just talk about this, that, and the other. And he, told me, he tells me over and over again, when people don't do something, fundamentally, it's just because they don't want to. They don't go somewhere, don't show up for something. He's like, we've all got excuses they don't want to. I just wonder, do you want to share the gospel this week? I, and I am not talking about being eloquent. Sometimes the eloquence gets in the way of the work of the Lord, because the work of the Lord is not us and our eloquence. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul is accused of not being eloquent. I'm just wondering if you would have the aim this week of being a part of this ministry of reconciliation, seriously enough to just have the aim of sharing the gospel with someone. I'm not trying to guilt you in the sense that you're a bad Christian because you haven't been doing this. I'm trying to elevate the status of your job description in this one sacred aim so that it's on the frontal lobe as you go from here this week. I'm not attempting to use guilt tactics. I'm trying to inspire you. I believe there's a difference. And if you look in this passage, there is a, the word therefore appears in this passage. Again, it appears in, appeared earlier in this chapter. It appears in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're, we're all, in a sense, elder statesmen for Christ. We're messengers for Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ. Ambassador language is important because when you've been entrusted as an ambassador, you know you're not supposed to tamper with the message of the president or whomever you're representing. You don't tamper with that message. You don't change a word. What does an ambassador do, folks? 
It's not that he or she controls the message, but rather he or she delivers the message. So it's vital if you're going to be a faithful ambassador that you know what the message is. And in our case, in this, this church, this, this outpost of the kingdom of heaven, where the kingdom has most come, this, as Edmund Clowney famously called it, this colony of the kingdom of heaven, what we are about, what you are about, is being a, an ambassador that delivers the message, not that invents the message. So it's very important that you know the gospel so that you know the message you're delivering. And it really doesn't matter if the people like the message of the gospel or not. You're supposed to deliver it because our king, our leader, he knows better than I what the message needs to be. So it kind of takes the pressure off. It kind of takes the pressure off because you don't have to be the most eloquent in order to be faithful. You simply have to have the aim to share the gospel, which means necessarily, as an ambassador, you know what the message is. You've meditated on it. And that's a lot, frankly, of what we do on Sunday after Sunday in here is when we come together, we're trying to learn the gospel so that gospel words from Scripture will be in our lips when we're talking with other people. The gospel message is reconciliation. Be reconciled to God, chapter 5, verse 20 says. That's a great four words to memorize in your aims to persuade others. Be reconciled to God. Max Stiles helps us with this definition of evangelism. Evangelism, he says, is teaching the gospel with aim to persuade. With aim to persuade. I thought that fit very well with our first point. Us about the business of persuading others. Teaching others with the aim to persuade. The punchline to other people when we've told them about God's great work for them is be reconciled to God. Trust the Lord Jesus. Max Stiles also writes that much of our problem with evangelism is that we don't have a big enough view of the church. He says that evangelism is teaching the gospel, which is the message from God that leads us to salvation, with the aim to persuade. We want to see a person convinced of the gospel is legitimate. So he then says that the local church is the gospel made visible. Max Stiles, pastor in the Middle East, does such a good job with this. I thought I'd just read you a very small selection from his little red book titled Evangelism. I think that's what our text is really getting at today in terms of persuading his evangelism. This comes on page 63 of his little book. I'll read you a short little excerpt. I think you'll find it relevant. He writes, If you're a part of a healthy church that has a culture of evangelism, you are a part of the greatest way of evangelism ever known. How has this principle of evangelism worked out in the church? He said, aside from pragmatic objections to the idea I'm about to put forth, we are dealing with a deeply spiritual biblical concept. Jesus said it this way, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, John 13, 36. Jesus also said, and prayed that they would be unified, John 17 says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's something he's writing here about, about our unity as a church and our messaging of the gospel and our unity around the gospel that is connected with the world, believing that, the, that Jesus has been sent. He goes on to write, Jesus says the love we have for one another in the church is a statement that we are truly converted. And when we are unified in the church, we show to the world that Jesus is the Son of God. Love confirms our discipleship. Unity confirms Christ's deity. It's a powerful witness. 
There are many scripture passages that instruct and shape our evangelistic efforts, but these verses are foundational because they show us that the church is to be a culture of evangelism, a culture of evangelism. We should use them to catechize our children. Question these catechisms. What action affirms our genuine conversion in Christ? Answer, loving other Christians. Question, and how do we show that Jesus is the Son of God? Answer, uniting with other believers. If we are to picture the gospel in our love for one another, that ne- if we are to picture the gospel in our love for one another, that needs to take place in a local congregation of people who have covenanted together in love to be a church. It's not abstract love, but love for people in the real world. I can't tell you how many times, writes Stiles, I have heard from non-Christian people that the church was strange to them. But what drew them into the fellowship was the love among the members. But the gospel is pictured not just in our love. Have you ever thought about how many biblical instructions God has built into the fabric of the church that, if done correctly, serve as proclamations of the gospel? In pursuing a healthy culture of evangelism, we don't remake the church for evangelism. Instead, we allow the things that God has already built into the church to proclaim the gospel. Jesus did not forget the gospel when he built the church. Now listen. For instance, baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It shows how his death is our death and how his life is our life. The Lord's Supper proclaims the death of Christ until he returns and prompts us to confess our sins and experience forgiveness anew. And when we pray, we pray the truths of God. We sing the great things God has done for us through the gospel. When we give, we give financially to advance the gospel message. The preaching of the word brings the gospel. In fact, the preaching of the word of God is what forms the church to begin with. And once formed, the church is given the task of making disciples who then are sent to preach the gospel to form new churches. This cycle has been happening since Jesus ascended into heaven, and this cycle will continue until he returns. Mac just wrote a sobering explanation of how the, the local church doesn't need to be remade in the name of evangelism. A healthy local church is about evangelism in its culture, in its DNA. Now, certainly there are things that we can do to refocus and recalibrate on the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're doing today, I think, in reading this text in no small part. But Max Stiles reminds us that it is our aim to persuade, but it is not guaranteed that we will be persuasive. Notice his definition of evangelism. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. This is the greatest difference between the Great Awakening of the 1800s as compared to the Great Awakening of the the 1700s. The Great Awakening of the 1700s was thoroughly dependent on God to bring the increase. The Great Evangelism of the 1800s and in its literature with its titular head, Finney, was about the kinds of techniques and in its literature about the kinds of techniques that would bring about the persuasion of people. Friends, you can't persuade people through technique with any lasting fruit. Oh, you might get a sale, but a sale is not going to last into eternity. God converts a sinner from the inside out. And so it's not about your technique. It's about your truth-telling. You tell them the gospel, and you implore them to be reconciled to God. It is our aim to persuade. It's not the guarantee that we would be persuasive. And we teach the gospel 
one-on-one to be sure, but we also teach the gospel at church built into the things that we do. Scott Hafeman said it this way. He said, it's not the power of human eloquence that persuades, but the presence of God's spirit. Conversely, it is not the desire for recognition from others, but the fear of God that should motivate our persuasion. So the first point, reconciliation is us about the business of persuading others. Second point is reconciliation is us about the business of pursuing Christ. Haifman also says the gospel does to call us to do something for God that he might save us. It announces what God has done to save us that we might trust him. When we talk about the second point of pursuing Christ, we might think that that doesn't fit in a sermon about evangelism, in a sermon about the message of reconciliation. But I think that it really does. And at the expense of reading too many books this morning, I'm going to grab one more quote, and it is my commitment that it's my last one, and it is from Michael Lawrence's little book on conversion. Listen to what he says about how us pursuing Christ corporately impacts our evangelism. He's talking here about the doctrine of regeneration, and here's what he writes. He says, the doctrine of regeneration doesn't just impact how we understand an individual's conversion. Regeneration has a corporate dimension also. Consider Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28. The you throughout these verses in Ezekiel is plural, better translated in Southern English as y'all. The result of the Spirit's regenerating work is a people living together under God's rule. The Spirit doesn't simply make me a singular new creation. He is making me part of God's new creation people. He inscribes God's rule on my heart. He inscribes God's rule on my heart, teaching me about love for neighbor and love for my brothers and sisters in Christ especially. He teaches me that my life with God includes a life with God's people in the corporate worship and the common life of the church. This is why John can say that you're a liar if you claim to love God but don't love your brother, 1 John 4.20. Or why Paul can say that we, Jew and Gentile, have already been made one new man, Ephesians 2, 13 through 16, already been made one new man. Regeneration, the doctrine of regeneration, gives us a heart not only for God, but also for God's people. The local church, listen to this, the local church should be a community of new creatures. Through our love and obedience, we give powerful testimony to the radical truth of the gospel. The world can write off a single Christian as an aberration. Put two or three Christians together and it's harder to write them off. Put five, 10, 50, 100 Christians living together in gracious, loving community and you have a message that cannot be ignored. Unfortunately, the opposite is also true. When churches look more like the world than like Christ, we effectively preach a different gospel. More than likely, it will be the gospel of nice rather than new. He contrasts the gospel of nice rather than new in his little book, Conversion. And it's a helpful little read if you're interested in it. Michael Lawrence's book on the doctrine of conversion, how God creates a people. Finally, Lawrence says this relevant to our sermon today. So what can we do to make sure that our community is a regenerate community? One that together proclaims the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to make men and women new. Here are a few suggestions. Number one, pay attention to membership. We don't want regenerate attendance. In fact, we want as many unregenerate non-Christians as possible to attend our weekly worship services. Rather, though, we do want regenerate church membership. 
because our members officially speak for the church in the world. We are in the ministry of reconciliation. We speak officially for the church in the world. Number two, he says, conduct membership interviews. I've already spoken about this in the sermon. The elders of the church should conduct membership interviews not to determine how good someone is, but to listen for the evidence of the new birth. He goes on to talk about things like church discipline and keeping baptism and church membership and the Lord's Supper connected, but I'm, I'm just going to end with the third one that he says because it really, really is punchy and goes with what we're talking about today. So he said, the elders of the church should conduct membership interviews not to determine how good someone is, but to listen for the evidence of a new birth. So number three, celebrate examples of repentance. Celebrate examples of repentance, not morality. Don't celebrate examples of morality. Celebrate examples of repentance. What a distinction with a difference, right? And here's what he writes about it. When members have a chance to hear one another's testimonies in public, when it's normal to confess sin and receive forgiveness, the model of discipleship shifts from self-righteousness to Christ-likeness. I'm moved by his distinction between celebrating examples of repentance not morality. This is not interviewing to see how good we are. It's how repentant we are. It's how much we recognize our need for Christ. That's what Lawrence is writing about. So to get our moorings back to where we are, we're in our second point that reconciliation is not only about us being about the business of persuading others, but seeing how we're about being about the business of pursuing Christ and Christian holiness has an impact on that persuasion. It, our corporate witness is affected by our pursuing Christ and our becoming that which we are, righteous in Christ. Listen simply to verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is a banner verse. You can make an entire sermon out of this. It's a banner verse for the nature and extent of the atonement for the believer in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. If you want a good verse to memorize, here's a good verse to memorize. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So who's him? Jesus, right? Give me the Sunday school answer. Who's him? Jesus. This is Jesus. So for our sake, he made Jesus to be sin. Oh, Jesus knew no sin. So that in Jesus, we corporately, collectively, might become the, the what? The very what? The righteousness of God. So you, we, in our new creatureness, under the new covenant in Christ's blood, we are being made righteous. We've been declared righteous for the day of the Lord. We are being made righteous each step of the way. That is a major focus of why we gather together on the Lord's Day, and it's a major reason for the community throughout the week, is that we know each other enough to be encouraging one another, spurring one another on toward the righteousness that we confirm is ours in Christ. It, it's, it, it's, I gave a sermon a few weeks ago on how we can energetically work on something that's guaranteed. So that's, that was a few weeks ago. But just to say, suffice to say for today, we can energetically work on our incre improving righteousness, though it's guaranteed. That's not sinful. That's not undermining Christ. That's being faithful to Christ. That's that's worshiping the, the risen Christ, who never sinned but became sin for us. And additionally, we, when we're not pursuing Christ, when we're stuck in a lull of, of self-focus and self-aggrandizement, 
when we are stunted in our growth in Christ and we're not connected with the corporate witness in a healthy way, we can put obstacles in other people's way. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6 down at your Bible. Chapter 6, verse 3. We put no obstacle in anybody's way. So no fault can be found with our ministry. The intimation is, is that we can put an obstacle in people's way. And I think that the marrow of the text is the obstacle we put in people's way is being afore described, the things that we have been talking about. Chapter 5, verse 21, it's all about sin. So we have to talk about sin when we talk about the gospel. We, we cannot aberrate God's attribute of love and separate it from his attribute of holiness. When sin enters the world, then God's holiness being rightly repulsed by sin kicks in another attribute of God, secondarily, his wrath to punish sin. God cannot deny himself. He is wholly perfect and completely self-sustaining from not only the foundations of the world, but all of his existence in eternity past. And so we can't talk about salvation with someone unless we are willing to talk about sin. Chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that it is our sin nature, our sins, that put Jesus on the cross. There's no salvation without your admitting that you put him there. But that's not the whole story. Your sin is nailed to that cross, and as the song it is well says, I can bear it no more, it is well with my soul. You get to reconciliation through the message of why we need reconciliation, which is the Old Testament law. We are lawbreakers and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each Resurrection Sunday, we post a video from a brother preacher that rhythmically repeats, why don't we just sing Jesus paid some of it? We don't sing Jesus paid some of it. We sing Jesus paid it all. Why do we sing Jesus paid it all? Because he did. Jesus paid it all. Every single drop of blood for every single drop of sin. A preacher in our morning Bible study, if it's let in here from 9 to 10, in the series, Behold Your God, said it like this. In this life, God cared more about putting your sin to death than keeping his son alive. That about made me weep when I heard that one. In this life, in this moment, his focus, he cared more about putting your sin to death than keeping his son alive. Think about that. Think about that. Sweet atonement that's substitutionary in nature, meaning somebody got in your place. He who knew no sin, who didn't sin, became sin, not just for you. We're talking about plural pronouns here, a corporate witness. He became sin for us. Are you beginning to see the sinews of Scripture? It's not about me. Part of the mortification of sin is the mortification of the individual, personal, private concept of salvation. It is true. It is true that I am personally saved. But it's not for privatization. 
We are saved, and part of our salvation is adopted into a family that was never about one person worshiping Jesus. It's about a corporate witness. It's about us. He who knew no sin is the individual, became sin as an individual sacrificial lamb, fulfilling all the promises of the Lord, all the promises of the Old Testament, all the lamb promises find their yes in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1 says. And so that one person made us not singularly focused on ourselves, but pursuant of a person and therefore able to bless one another and encourage one another in fighting sin. We get it backwards, don't we? There's a corporate witness that he died for and he did not make a mistake. Nothing compares to the story. It's the best ever. There's nothing better than the story of Christ's sweet substitutionary atonement. That's why when we sing it as well with my soul, it's powerful. Jesus paid it all. It's powerful. In my place, condemned he stood. It's powerful. I'm going to start making Kurt think about what song he's got to figure out how to sing at the end. I'm trying to quote so many of these great songs that he can't do that, that he gets dazed and confused and realizes I'm not really calling for a song. I'm just trying to remind you the whole lexicon of hymns that we sing about Christ's sweet substitutionary atonement is glorious and beautiful and indicative of our corporate witness together, pursuing Christ and looking to him instead of ourselves for salvation and then losing ourselves in one another. It's beautiful. It's the gospel. We're being made righteous like Christ. And so now we hasten the day of the Lord. We believe these promises of righteousness and we pursue pleasing Christ with an aim also to persuade others. Even as we have this aim toward holiness, we are persuading and we are pursuing, we are persuading, we are pursuing. And these first and se- this first and the second point, they kind of come together because one is connected with the other. In your pursuance of Christ, you are a part of, of this corporate witness that is faithful to the gospel. If you don't pursue Christ, you'll have a level of hypocrisy that no matter how much you look to be ministers of defense, I mean of reconciliation, you won't effectively be it because this corporate witness is broke down. And yet, if all we do is pursue Christ and we don't see part of pursuing Christ as also persuading others, then we might run the risk of becoming insular and not believing that people change and that the Spirit of God is still about intercepting people in their sin and changing them from the inside out through God's indwelling presence in in a human and thus bringing glorious new testimonies, not of do-goodism and moralisms, but of repentance and of eternal life in Christ. So these two points go together. We are indeed about the business of persuading others as we pursue Christ, and there's no necessary separation between the two. Chapter 5, verse 21 is a banner verse for connecting these two. He who knew no sin became sin for me and for you. Thirdly and finally, we're about this reconciliation business, and we are about the business of not only persuading, not only pursuing, but doing it with urgency. Don't forget the preposition, with urgency. With urgency. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, afresh. Working together with him, then we appeal to you. Working together with him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Warnings to the believers, stay the course. Don't be like Hebrews 6 Don't be found out to be a falsy. Stay the course. Cling to the cross. Stay with Christ. Trust his work in you. And then verse 2. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. 
in a favorable time, I have listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. These verses are mirroring and picking up on the third section of the prophetic book, the major prophet Isaiah. And you might remember that embedded in Isaiah, in that third section of Isaiah, is the suffering servant imagery that we often read on communion Sundays. You know what I'm talking about? Isaiah 52 and 53, right in the middle of that. The Apostle Paul is hearkening back to the ministry of Moses in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he's saying that we have been entrusted with a better and newer covenant, with a covenant that comes because the old covenant has been fulfilled. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And he speaks about the access that we have beyond the veil in 2 Corinthians 4 because this ministry is not like Moses. This is something further along the line. This is a new covenant, and the newness of the new covenant that removes the veil is eternal. It will not be usurped by another covenant. This is the new covenant in Christ's blood. That's the story. Moses was pointing to it. Moses wasn't it. And so now he not only quotes the law in 2 Corinthians 4, but he's very comfortable in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6 quoting the prophets. And he does so directly here. It's the reason we've read Isaiah 49, and we're also going to read from Isaiah 55 at the benediction today, is because we want to see the urgency that we have because this was God's design from the foundations of the world, that God intended, and it's, it's laced in and through the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, and the, the picture comes into view in Christ's blood and is now being articulated about biblically and theologically in the New, Covenant, in the New Testament letters, in the New Testament letters. And so 2 Corinthians being a New Testament letter is quoting the prophet after it's quoted the law, and is saying all of this finds its completion in Christ. And chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, working together with Christ, we appeal to you. We appeal to you. Make our appeals in Christ. And in a favorable time, God has listened to you. In the day of salvation, God has helped you. Isaiah, picking up on Isaiah 49, 8, summarizing Paul's own appeal to the Corinthian Christians to the church. He identifies his ministry as an apostle with Isaiah's prophetic role of calling Israel to repentance and perseverance in view of the coming day of redemption and salvation. Behold now, Paul declares that this time of salvation has already arrived in Christ. It's already arrived in Christ. Amazingly, God is already pouring out as many, out many blessings of the age that is to come. And that's from the ESV study Bible, which I commend to you. He's already pouring out many blessings of the age to come right now. Today is the day of salvation. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. How would one receive God's grace? He would receive God's grace through Christ. And as you deepen in this message of reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation, as you deepen in this corporate witness and this pursuing of Christ, the urgency for these things comes into view. Urgency fades when I'm farther from the word of God. But so does satisfaction in God. And so I put obstacles in people's ways, but we don't want obstacles. We want aims. We want to speak freely about the gospel with other people. We want to seek holiness. We want to aim to persuade others. We want to aim to pursue Christ. We want to behold the Lord. As people that have been forgiven much, we've been shown much mercy. And so we are merciful people. Have you ever had a debt you couldn't pay? Kind of like me that day at Dockery's 
grocery in that little one-horse town with two gas pumps. I dropped my little camouflage wallet on a little dirt road between the elementary school and the grocery store, and I bought things I couldn't pay for. There was probably somebody there that could help me out. I went back and got my wallet and paid my debt. But friends, I'm not talking today about just a little mishap. I'm not talking about a debt you can pay. Multiply how I felt times a thousand, and it doesn't scratch the surface of how you should feel without Christ. You see, there is a debt of sin that you cannot pay before a righteous God. He's holy and he is righteous to keep you separate from him so long as you continue to love your sin. And he will keep you separate. God will not be mocked. He will keep you separate. The path to reconciliation with God is through receiving Christ's sacrifice on a cross for you. That's the path. And today is a good day for salvation. It's a good day for you to receive what Christ has done for you. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that while we are yet sinners, Christ has died for us. That's you if you'll believe it. He's died. You're the us. He's died for you. I don't care what games you've played with church. I don't care what your motives have been for coming. I don't care if you even came today intent to do anything more than to mock religion and to get through the day. I'm speaking to you if the Lord allows it. Today is the day of salvation for you. God will not be mocked. While you're yet in your sin, Christ has already tasted death for you. He died for you, every drop of his blood, for every drop of your sin. That is the only way you'll have admittance into heaven. Trust in Jesus, and you will know love like nothing else that this world has to offer. It is the greatest love story ever told. He died in your place. Let's pray. God, thank you for stepping in to pay my debt. Thank you for making me aware of it 20 years ago. Thank you for giving us this ministry of reconciliation corporately and individually. Help us to pursue you in a way that we might rightly reflect your message and we would not make an aberration of it through quick fixes. We would not make an aberration of it through selfishness with a little thin veneer of Jesus on top. We want the whole gospel for your whole people. In Jesus' name, amen. If our ushers would come to collect our...